Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. We're going to be reading chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 4. Well, let's give attention now to God's Holy Word as He speaks to us. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law." You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. 
For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking God's blessing this evening, let's turn back to verse 5 of our chapter. Romans chapter 2. As we said this morning, here the Apostle Paul is giving the explanation as to why it is that his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, who had all the wonderful spiritual advantages of being God's covenant people, Israel, why they refused to repent, why they didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, why they didn't take the goodness of God as something that would lead them to repentance, but rather despised it, ignored it, abused it, and continued on in their hypocritical, sinful, self-righteous lifestyle. He explains why that happened. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He says it's in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. In other words, the hardness and impenitence of your heart. And we saw this morning that impenitence involves a refusal to repent, a refusal to reconsider, to rethink, to reevaluate, and to turn from sin unto God through the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jews refused to repent. They had an impenitent heart because they had a hardened heart. A heart of unbelief, a heart of depravity and spiritual inability that they inherited from their father Adam, and yet which they willfully hardened themselves day by day, and which Psalm 95 exhorts them, today if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. But they continued to harden their heart. And this morning our emphasis was evangelistic in nature confronting the hard, impenitent heart of unbelief and recognizing that the only hope 
for such a heart is the sovereign grace of God. And that you and I have no power or ability to change our hearts. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But we saw that this fact of our total spiritual inability is actually the mechanism by which the Holy Spirit so frequently converts sinners and gives them a new heart when they become hopeless and helpless self-consciously in themselves. They, they have nothing to do but to surrender themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. To come to Him having been weary and burdened and heavy laden with their sin and with their inability, the Spirit compels them to enter the kingdom and to enter into the rest purchased for them by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing and it's a God-glorifying thing. But this evening, our focus shifts to the fact that hardness of heart is a problem for believers as well. It's a problem for believers as well. It's not the case that this idea of having a hard heart or hardening our hearts or this type of thing, that it, or even having an impenitent heart, that it only has reference to unbelievers. The fact is that as believers who have remaining sin in our sinful humanity, in our flesh, that remaining sin functions in much the same way that the unregenerate heart functions. Now, that sin that remains in us does not have dominion. It doesn't have preeminence. It's not who we are. We've been transformed. We've been given a new heart. Christ is the Lord and King of our lives. But that sinful flesh hardens our heart. That sinful flesh promotes and produces impenitence within our hearts. And we have to wrestle with these things not in the same way, thankfully, that the unconverted person wrestles with these things or really doesn't wrestle at all in a sense because they're under the dominion, the enslaving power of sin. But as believers, we know that Christ has purchased for us and gives to us all that we need for life and godliness. And so as we confront the reality of hard-heartedness in the life of a believer, we can confront it with confidence that sin shall not have dominion over us because we are not under law, but under grace. And because of the victory achieved by Christ, when we get to that point of Romans 7 where we're not doing what we should be doing, we're doing things we shouldn't be doing, We're filled with this tension of disobedience and willfulness. And we cry out, who will deliver me from this body of death? We can be confident that God through His Son, Jesus Christ, has already delivered us. And we need only follow the steps and the pattern in Romans chapter 8 to gain substantial, gradual victory over sin. And we'll leave that for Romans chapter 8. But the point is, we want to address it in that confidence and with that optimism. Not to be intimidated by hardness of heart. Not for true believers to think that they're unconverted just because they're dealing with hardness of heart. And yet, we need to take this very, very seriously. The Bible says that out of the heart flow the issues of life. And so as believers, our Christian life flows out of our heart. It flows out of our 
relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who dwells in our hearts by faith. And so if there's a disconnect, if there's a problem with our heart, if we've become dull of hearing, insensitive, resistant, stubborn to the Word and will of God, if we're living at a distance from Christ and we're not sensing His presence in our heart, if that's happening and we're backsliding, that's a huge problem. That's going to hamstring our efforts at serving God and living the Christian life. Hard-heartedness is most certainly a problem for believers as well. In fact, if you have a desire to do a study on this, you can go through the Gospel of Mark and see that there are numerous instances, more than in the other Gospels, where Jesus addresses hardness of heart among His disciples, among His believing disciples. One example of this, the last one that's mentioned in Mark's Gospel, Mark 16, verse 14, it says, later Jesus appeared to the eleven. Notice the eleven. So we're dealing with believers here, not Judas. He appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen Him after He had risen. And then He gives the Great Commission. But notice, He rebukes the eleven. These are the apostles. Now they hadn't received the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost, but these are converted men that Jesus discerned to be called to the ministry. And yet He rebukes them for unbelief and for hardness of heart. And again, we recognize those words are often used of the unconverted, but we apply them to ourselves. I believe. I'm a believer. Lord, help my unbelief. I have unbelief. Uh, The fact is, I also have a hard heart. And so do you. And we need to address this. Even though we're believers, we have this problem. Jesus addresses it in His own disciples. Song of Solomon 5 verse 2, the bride says, uh, I sleep, but my heart is awake. I sleep, but my heart is awake. You see in the parable of the ten virgins, even the five wise virgins fall asleep for a time. We backslide. We're sluggish. We're sleepy as Christians. And our hearts become insensitive, dull, numb. And this is a problem for all of us at times in our Christian life. And so this morning we looked at hardness of heart toward the Word of God. I want to say something about that and also look at some other aspects of of the things in our lives whereby uh, we manifest our hardness of heart toward the Lord. So we'll look at His Word, His works, His worship, and His people. And then after that, God willing, we'll look at some things that we can do as believers, filled with the Holy Spirit. Things that we can do to overcome this hardness of heart that we experience in our Christian lives. Well, we talked this morning about hardness of heart toward the Word. I just want to reiterate a couple things that if our hearts were adequately sensitive to the Word of God, the Bible tells us that we would view it as more valuable than gold and silver. Sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. That we would taste and see the goodness of the Lord in it. That our hearts would burn as we hear the Word of God expounded as it points to the Lord Jesus Christ, our beloved Bridegroom. Peter goes so far as to say in 2 Peter 1, 18 and 19, 
that this even more sure word of prophecy that we have in the Bible uh, is even greater in significance than when God spoke from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If our hearts were in tune the way the Lord Jesus Christ's heart was in tune when He sat under the Word day by day and week by week in the synagogue, then we would see it, we would experience it, we would taste it in that way, the massive significance of the Word of God. Of course, we saw in Romans 2 that the Jews despised the Word of God. They rejected it. They professed it in one sense, but violated it in virtually every other sense. But as Christians, we struggle with this as well. Taking the Word of God as being significant, as being powerful, as being living and active. It's interesting in Hebrews, the uh, contrast that you see between Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 5 with respect to the Word of God as it is and as we would perceive it if our hearts were in tune with it, if our hearts were soft and sensitive versus how the people of God among the Hebrew Christians in practice responded to the Word of God. And I think just as an aside, this is really the heart of what we call Reformed experimental preaching. It's taking what the Bible says should be our experience as believers and then contrasting it with what our experience actually is as believers and noting the difference and then looking at the gap between what is the case and what ought to be the case and seeking through the strength of the Word and Spirit of God to to reduce the, the gap and to move in the right direction in our Christian life and experience. Well, Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, But all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. That's the Word of God. As it is in itself, it's alive. It's dynamic. It is powerful. Timothy, he knew the Scriptures from an early age which are able, which are powerful to make him wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. This is a spiritually dynamic thing. The Word of God. It's alive. It's captivating. It, it, it's, it's, it would produce in our hearts just if we read it and listened to it as if it were truly God speaking to us. Jesus speaking to us. Think of it. The Word of God. That's what it is. It pierces our hearts. It convicts us. It shows us our sin. It divides joints and marrow, discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. It puts us under the microscope and evaluates what we're doing and how we're living and what our intentions really are. We say often, well, you can't judge my heart. Well, the Word of God can. And when we read it as it's meant to be read, when we hear it preached as it's meant to be heard and as it's meant to be preached, it will expose us in a way that as believers, for whatever reason... Um, We enjoy that. 
We want that. Because we want Jesus to speak openly and honestly into our lives. And the Word of God offers that to us. And we're not hidden from His sight. But He speaks to us. He exposes us. He guides us. He comforts us. He embraces us through His Word. But notice in chapter 5, what Paul, I think Paul's the author here, what the author says as he's expounding the prophecy that Jesus would be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's expounding Psalm 110 and in a masterful way bringing out the prophetic meaning here and how it points to Christ as our King and as our priest. And he he goes in verse 8, he talks about though Jesus was a son, the Son of God, yet He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. He's dealing with the humanity of Christ, how He was a real man. He went through real human experiences. And though He's God, He learned. Now, He didn't have to be corrected for sin. He didn't have any sinful deficits. But He learned and developed in His quote-unquote Christian life or in His spiritual experience. So These are marvelous things that... Uh, ought to be preached in their own time and place. But he says, verse 11, of whom we have much to say, of whom we have much to say, and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So Paul says that he has much to say, uh, most preachers do, for for one reason or another, but he has much to say, and he has a lot to say about Christ and expounding Him from the Old Testament, but He says, we're not able to do that. We're not able to get to that next level and challenge your understanding and your practice. We're not able to do that because you've become dull of hearing, which is the same language from Isaiah 6 of those who have a hardened heart. They see, but they don't perceive. They don't understand. They hear, but they're dull of hearing. That's the language that he's using here. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So he's saying that we need to make use of the Word of God. We need to be diligently using it so that it becomes part of us and that it equips us to be teachers. You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm not ever going to be a teacher. Ladies, you might say, well, I'm, I'm not allowed to teach in the church. Right? There's a biblical precept about that. Ah, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about preachers and teachers. He's not talking about elders who are apt to teach. He's not dealing with that. He's saying in the life of the church, there is the need for every Christian to be more and more equipped to teach. And let's think about the context of that. How many times are there needs within the congregation? People have questions People have doctrinal questions and they gain insight just by going over to somebody's house for hospitality, asking a more experienced Christian about this or that doctrine. 
many of us actually came to many of our convictions and understanding of the Reformed faith through those types of conversations. Not an elder, not a pastor, just a Christian who reads his or her Bible, thinking here of um, you know, Priscilla and Aquila. You know, they took Apollos aside. Priscilla was in some way a part of that conversation. So men and women, all Christians, all professing Christians, all communicant Christians ought to be in one way or another growing and being equipped to be teachers. And the most obvious thing is, is if God grants you to have children. And those children need to be taught. They need to be instructed in the first principles of the oracles of God. And so there are many wonderful and exciting ways in which God enlists and empowers every Christian to do these things, but it's important for us to not put a glass ceiling on our usefulness in the kingdom. And that seems to be what's happening among the Hebrews here. Some people think, oh, I'm going to be a teacher someday. I'm going to be a preacher someday. Maybe I aspire to church office or something. But then other people are thinking, well, I don't need to to master these things. We all need to. And we have different gifts and different abilities and different levels and things like that. But we need to be quick to hear, quick to listen, and we need to be seeking to understand the principles of biblical doctrine so that we can graduate to the more meaty doctrines of the faith and be able to encourage and help others within the life of the church. Otherwise, what's going to happen is that the elders and the pastor, we're all going to burn out because we need every member seeking to edify the body and encourage and exhort and teach, not in a sort of authoritative way overstepping our bounds, but we need to be training our children and exhorting and coming alongside other members of the church and inquirers to the body of Christ. So we want to be skilled in the word of righteousness through constant use, but what's happening is through constant use, the opposite is happening. And we know that from experience. We know that from experience because... If I read John 3.16 right now, how many of us would be tempted to glaze over? How many of us, when we encounter texts of the Bible that we've heard a thousand times, we're tempted to just, rather than being uh, stirred up, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, the living and active Word of God, let's receive it and chew on it and understand it and teach it and we're excited and we're ready to blow the trumpet. Instead, we get bored. We glaze over. We fall asleep at the wheel. And what happens is the familiarity breeds contempt. And what he's saying here is that in the midst of your Bible study, in the midst of hearing sermons and understanding and discussing these things, in the midst of your theological study, reading edifying books and devotionals, in the midst of those things, you need to engage your heart and you need to understand why you're doing it. It's to grow closer to God, to know Him, to be sanctified in the truth and equipped to serve others. But we can so easily become hardened to the Word of God. It just doesn't make a dent. And we can be regular in our Bible reading and still not have these deep interactions with God through His Word. We can read it day in and day out. The Jews in Romans 2, they were probably reading the Bible every single day, but they weren't engaging with God 
as the source of a living and active Word. They were not reading it as one who's under the microscope of Almighty God who knows our hearts and the intents of them and who communicates and reveals these insights and convicts us of sin and teaches and instructs us through His Word. So even if you're reading your Bible every day, ooh, I ticked the box, don't think that that's all that's being required or uh, uh, recommended in this passage. Um, we can't be hard of heart toward the Word of God. And that means we have to engage the Word of God with our hearts at a deep level. We need to have a tender heart. I said this morning that Josiah, in 2 Kings 22, when he heard the Word of God read, he was convicted. He wept. The Lord says he had a tender heart. He had a tender heart. He didn't put up his defenses. He let the Word of God expose him and he sorrowed over his sin. And the Lord was pleased by that. So we can be hardened toward the Word of God. We can also be hardened toward the works of God. A classic example of this, of course, would be Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 9, as God is raining down these judgments, the various plagues, the ten plagues on Egypt. There's an interesting passage here. Exodus 9, verse 23. This is the seventh plague, the hail. You can find a number of similar passages within the, the overall section of the ten plagues here. Similar passages that say something to this same effect. But Exodus 9, 23 and following is a good snapshot of Pharaoh's hardness of heart toward the works of God. We're told here, verse 23, Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. Uh, So you've got not just the, the farm animals, but the servants, the human beings out in the fields are getting pummeled with these giant hailstones, and uh, no doubt many of them are dying. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. This is some massive hail that's happening right here. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So God's communicating through His works that He's judging Pharaoh for not letting Israel go to worship Him in the wilderness. He's judging Pharaoh. He's not sending the hail on Israel. It's very clear. If ever there was a providential circumstance or event that was just crystal clear what God was saying, here it is. And yet He also had Moses and Aaron to give the divine interpretation of these providential works of God. We're told that, verse 27, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. And you say, well, that's a pretty significant confession. I have sinned. We wouldn't expect much more than that. I mean, that's what the prodigal son said when he repented. I have sinned. The Lord is righteous. I and my people, or my people and I, even gets his grammar correct, my people and I 
are wicked. Seems like a genuine confession of sin at face value. And treat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. So the Lord discerns his heart. Notice what happens here. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So some of the crops were destroyed, some of the crops were not destroyed. Notice the response then of Pharaoh. So Moses lifts up his hands and ends the plague. Verse 34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go. So what's happening here is he's saying, look, only some of the crops were destroyed. I still have these other crops. I think I'm just going to, you know, well, I'd say quit while you're ahead, but it's really the opposite. He says, I'm going to actually not repent. I'm going to stop it right here because I still have these crops and I have enough crops to do what I need to do. And he stops there and he refuses to follow through on the fruit of repentance. Now, my friends, that's the seventh plague. Six plagues in, God has continued to judge him and manifest his wrath and anger against Pharaoh and demonstrate time and time again that he means business. And yet Pharaoh's heart is hardened by the fact that, oh, he sees there's some circumstance, he hasn't quite ended up in the pigsty with the prodigal yet. There's some hope in his outward circumstance to just continue in his path of sin and unbelief. There's something to grasp hold of. Oh, I've got, these, I've got these crops that haven't been destroyed. The wheat and the spelt were not struck. And he ignores the works of God. He ignores the works of God in the past. And he's confronted with the works of God in the eighth plague, the ninth plague. He doesn't repent. He's hardened more and more. Even you get to the tenth plague, his son is struck dead along with all the firstborn sons throughout the land of Egypt. The entire nation cries out in agony and grief. And he doesn't stop there. When Israel is let go, he chases them out in the wilderness and his reign of terror doesn't end until he's finally drowned in the Red Sea. He became hardened to the obvious warnings and works of God in his life. And we could look at Scripture examples of this till we're blue in the face, but I think what's significant is Pharaoh's not the only one that was hardened to the works of God. Psalm 95, which we looked at this morning, tells us that the Israelites, for the most part, these unconverted Israelites also ignored the works of God. It wasn't just Egypt and Pharaoh, but the Israelites whom God redeemed from bondage in Egypt, the Israelites themselves hardened their hearts toward the works of God. They hardened their hearts toward the fact that God sent the ten plagues. 
They hardened their hearts toward the reality of the Red Sea crossing where God delivered them miraculously, unprecedentedly. They hardened their hearts toward the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. The presence of God with them at the tabernacle every single day. They hardened their hearts toward the water that flowed like a river out of the rock in the wilderness. They hardened their hearts toward the manna from heaven six days a week. They hardened their hearts toward the fact that their shoes and their clothing didn't wear out. All of these works of God, the goodness of God, the miraculous works and blessing of God. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He says, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. They saw my work. But they didn't believe. They doubted. They put me to the test. Are are you really powerful enough? Are you really faithful? They hardened their hearts though they had manna every day. Though they saw the visible manifestation of God's presence every single day without fail. And you say, well, but they were unconverted. No, they were unconverted. Most of them. But are you going to tell me that the believers... The remnant of believers among the Israelites in the wilderness didn't struggle with this as well. I mean, when we have the apostles who saw all of Jesus' mighty works, and even the apostles themselves are doubting the resurrection. In fact, Jesus confronts His apostles, as I said, throughout the Gospel of Mark. In one instance, Jesus feeds 5,000 by multiplying the bread. Then He feeds 4,000 multiplying the bread. And then not too long after that, his disciples are sitting around arguing and debating, how are we going to get bread? And they're believers. Yes, I do think that the believing Israelites in the wilderness struggled with hardness of heart. They began to take for granted and become become familiar in an unhealthy sense toward the works of God. And this is a problem for us as well. My friends... We see people being converted. If I started asking people to come up and give their testimony of their conversion, we've seen people converted in the last year or two, three years, four years. We could could have people come up here. We would see the mighty works of God and they would tell you, here's how I lived before my conversion and now I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is, is performing mighty works all around us every day. He's feeding us spiritually He's sustaining every person that He's converted. He's working all things for good. He's chastening us as a good and gracious Father. He's teaching us. I mean, we could go on and on. The works of God that we experience day in and day out. Not even to mention the work of God causing the sun to rise and set and all of the works of nature. We see these things and we take them for granted. They ought to lead us to repentance, but we're hardened in our hearts toward them. Not just His Word and His works, but His worship as well. We said this morning that the Jews in Romans 9.4 are said to have had the advantage of the service or the worship of God. The worship of God. But we saw in the life of Christ, He had to confront them because the house of God became a house of merchandise. If not a den of thieves. And that house was left to them desolate because they didn't appreciate it as a place where God 
dwelt in the midst of His people. And the place where God would send His Messiah, the Lord who would come to His temple. They didn't, they didn't concern themselves with that. They were just trying to make a buck off the Gentiles and the people coming from all over the world so that they could trade in their money and get their sacrificial animals. They, they forgot the significance of worship. Psalm 27.4 describes how David viewed worship at the tabernacle or temple, as it's called here. Psalm 27.4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. Again, the, the temple came later, but he's speaking of the tabernacle here. His desire, his one chief desire is to come into the worship of God and to experience God and to see God through a glass darkly, but to see the glory of God Himself. Israel had the worship of God. We, even more so, have the worship of God. But it's interesting, again, David, Psalm 51, verse 17, says that when you come to the house of God, to worship. Here's the sacrifice above all that God desires. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. So what's happening when David comes to the tabernacle is that he's anticipating and then experiencing the presence of God in his ordinances and in his worship. And he's coming with a sacrifice of praise and an utter humility in the presence of a holy God. It's impacting him to the core of his being. His heart is broken. His heart is humbled. The worship of God is dynamic and transformative in his entire being, his entire outlook. He comes to be broken, to be changed. Not just a humdrum kind of routine, coming to church and so on, but for, for him, worship is to see God and to be collapsed on the floor in humility and confession of sin, broken in his heart and in his spirit. That's the worship of God in the presence of God. And my friends, it only gets more dynamic in the New Testament. Hebrews 12 tells, that, tells us that we have access to something that's far more amazing and far more transformative and dynamic than ever David did at the tabernacle. Hebrews 12.22, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. So, when we come to the footstool, we're in union with the throne in heaven, which is surrounded by the saints and angels who worship in holy perfection. We come before the mercy seat. We come to the throne of grace. We come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, by faith. And not only that, we come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things 
than that of Abel. What should we be anticipating when we come into the worship of God? This is telling us that we should be anticipating that we're seated by faith with Christ in heavenly places. That we come before God, the judge of all, and we're convicted of our sins in the presence of this omniscient, omnipotent, holy judge. And yet, we're also in the presence of our mediator. We come into the presence of God accompanied by the mediator of the new covenant. And His blood speaks. It speaks through the singing of God's praise. It speaks through the word read and preached. It speaks through the psalm meditation. It speaks through the Lord's Supper. It speaks through baptism. It speaks through God's ordinances and His Word as they go forth. It speaks to our conscience. And it speaks before the throne of God's judgment declaring that our sins are forgiven and that we are accepted and right with Almighty God. My friends, we need to hear that. We need to hear that every week. We need to hear that in our personal devotional time too. But thinking of public worship, we need to hear that. And that's what we should be hearing. And different sermons and different psalm selections and different things will emphasize some of the different things here. But to one extent or another, we need to be coming into worship to have dealings with God so that we can walk out of worship not afraid of the final judgment, but in a sense, we've already reenacted that in the worship service. We've come before the judge and we've heard the blood speak and our consciences are soothed by the Gospel and we're equipped and empowered thinking of the holy saints and the holy angels. We want to be holy and we're motivated to live out and make that calling and election sure through godly obedient living. We need to come into the presence of God. And that's what His worship offers to us. But how easily we just make it a routine. And we get familiar with it. And we become cynical. And we focus on, well, the bread tasted different this time around in this Lord's Supper. Or, you know, I do it too. I've been at other churches for the last two weeks. I know how it, I'm sitting in the pews. I could easily be distracted. But it's very important for us to understand what worship is and to seek, as we'll see in a moment through some practical uh, things for us to pursue, to seek to be prepared for it and to be soft and sensitive and receptive in our hearts to what is actually happening. In addition, we can be hard-hearted toward the people of God. Toward the people of God. The Jews really, it's inexcusable. It's inexcusable that they responded in the way they did as we looked at this morning in rejecting Christ and, and responding the way they did because the very last passage in the Old Testament, Malachi, Malachi chapter 4 Verses 4-6. through six. I'm not sure if this comes last in the Hebrew Bible, but it's certainly the last prophet. It says this, in anticipation of the Son of Righteousness, which would arise with healing in His wings, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. With the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, that's John the Baptist, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And what do we find in the hearts of the Israelites, the Jews, when Jesus arrives? Once again, go to Mark's Gospel. Repeatedly, he has to confront them, not only of their hard heart toward God, but of their hard hearts toward others. Even hard hearts toward other people in their own family. Again, John is calling them to their hearts would turn from the fathers to the children and vice versa. That that God would heal them and heal their relationships. And we find quite the opposite. Mark 3 verse 5, Jesus is about to heal uh, a blind man or a lame man. but He's about to heal somebody and the Pharisees object because it's the Sabbath. And he says, is it not lawful for me to do good? Here's this disabled person who's desiring to be healed by the Son of God incarnate. What an amazing opportunity. And Jesus says, is it not lawful to do good rather than evil on the Sabbath? These people who put forth great effort to get their ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath, but Jesus can't reach out His finger and touch somebody and make them heal heal them. And Jesus was overwhelmed and angered by their hardness of heart toward this man and toward the clear teaching of the Scriptures on the Sabbath day. Their hardness of heart toward this man. Mark chapter 7, when it says their hearts are far from Him, Jesus explains an example of this, how their hearts are far from God and far from their own family, that instead of supporting their aging family members, their parents... They would give money to the temple and somehow move around some, some funds here and there and it would, it, would, it would somehow release them from their obligation to take care of their parents in later years. Their hearts were hard toward their parents, toward their own flesh and blood. And Jesus says in Mark 10 verse 5 that one of the reasons that Moses had to, at, at a judicial level, permit so many divorces and remarriages that are contrary to the moral law of God is the hardness of the hearts of the people. And you see that same kind of approach to marriage among the the Pharisees in Jesus' day. What Malachi says, there's weeping at my altar because of the people that you've trampled underfoot in marriage or in these relationships. You've been unkind. You've been unforgiving, unloving. You've hardened your heart toward other people. And isn't it interesting that these are precisely the sins that Paul outlines in connection with the Gentiles. Remember back at the end of Romans 1, they are unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Have we hardened our hearts? Have you hardened your heart toward a member of your family? Toward a member of the church? Have you hardened your heart, and would this be accurate to say of you, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful? My friends, these are things we need to grapple with in our Christian life. But what do we do about them in closing? What do we do with this problem of hard-heartedness? Well, first, we need to lament our backslidden condition. We need to at least come to grips with the fact that our heart is hard towards some or other of these things that we've mentioned and we need 
to recognize that we're not content with that. We need to come to grips with our condition and lament it and complain about it and and be upset about it and be dissatisfied about it. This is very crucial in coming out of a period of backsliding at the very least that your heart would be tender about its own lack of tenderness. Right? We don't want to run before we catch the football. We need to start with the basics. Come to grips with the fact that your heart is hard and at least be tender to that reality. And let the reality of that conviction of sin and that uh, just situation in your life, in your Christian life, let it take effect. Let it impact you. Lament it. Be bothered by it. How can you not be? We see this, Jeremiah 31.18. Ephraim, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised. He goes on, restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. This is what I'm saying. Come before the Lord in prayer and bemoan yourself. Don't complain about God, but complain about yourself to God. And say, Lord, restore me and I will return. I have a hard and penitent heart. I don't think I'm going to be able to be loving and forgiving to this particular person. I don't think I'm going to be able to have a vibrant prayer life and study of God's Word or approach the worship of God without being distracted. I don't see myself improving in these areas, but at least I'm upset about it and I'm going to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I bemoan myself. I lament and repent. And, and really, I feel like I can't even repent. I can't even do that. But Lord, restore me and I will return and repent. For you are the Lord my God. That's the difference. With the unconverted person, uh, they can't claim these things with the same assurance that a believer can say, Lord, restore me. Revive me. You're the good shepherd who restores my soul. Restore my soul. You've promised to do that. You're my faithful shepherd. Restore my soul. He goes on, Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. The first step in repentance and getting out of your backslidden condition is is just to bemoan yourself. Strike yourself on the thigh. Get something going. Be discontented with your backslidden condition. Desire better things by the power of God's Spirit in these areas. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. But notice the Lord's response. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up the signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Now, she's polluted herself with all these idols, but notice he speaks to her in such glowing terms. O virgin of Israel, your soul, your heart will be restored. Notice that... Restoration is not grounded in our hearts. It's grounded in the heart of God for His people. Notice, we set our hearts toward the highway. Why? Because God's heart yearns 
for His backslidden child. Because He loves you. Because He yearns for you. He desires you. And He restores you. And He showers you with this term, O virgin of Israel, turn back. O you backsliding daughter, turn back. Lament your backslidden condition. Humble yourself. Look at the call to worship. Whom does the Lord revive? The spirit of the humble and the heart of the contrite ones. That's who the Lord revives. Again, this is, this is a logical next step. We're lamenting and bemoaning our backslidden condition and that implies there's already humility there to begin with. So we've humbled ourselves. We've lamented and bemoaned our condition. Thirdly, pray in faith. Pray in faith. We have not because we ask not. Now it is true that for the unconverted, there's no guarantee that if somebody says, I want a new heart, that God is obligated to give that person a new heart. But if you're a believer and you pray for a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit to bring you out of a backsliding condition, I'm not sure if obligated is the right term, but Um, God certainly has obligated Himself by way of His covenant promise that you will receive the Holy Spirit. Luke 11, verse 13, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You want to grow in any of these areas? You want to come back and follow the signpost back to a more intimate relationship with God and loving relationship with His people, here's the signpost. Just come before the throne of grace and ask. If you ask for a fish, He's not going to give you a scorpion. If you ask for bread, He's not going to give you a stone. He promises, if you're a child of God, that He will give you the Holy Spirit. And, and under that heading of the Holy Spirit, I mean, that's everything we could possibly need in our backslidden state to be restored. So we need to pray in faith. We need to pray urgently like Jacob, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. And I would urge you, read through the Psalms. We don't have time to do it, but numerous prayers that we can take upon our lips. Lord, um, Give me an undivided heart. Unite my heart to fear Your name. Throughout Psalm 119, again and again, we see the prayer to revive me. Revive me, O Lord, according to Your loving kindness. Revive me according to Your promises. Again and again, God puts these prayers on our lips and says, even dares us, pray this prayer and I will revive You. I will lift up my countenance upon You and restore your soul. Lastly, prepare Him room. Declutter and make room for the Lord Jesus Christ to dwell in your heart by faith. I'm not saying He's not there, but when Paul prays that prayer in Ephesians 3 for Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith, he's talking about the conscious fellowship that we have with Christ. Not just that He's there, but that He's there and we're dwelling with Him. Like a husband and a wife dwell together, Peter says. Dwell together in peace. Well, we need to make room for Christ in our hearts. Proverbs 14.14 says, The backslider in heart 
is filled with his own ways. But it says the upright, the believer, is satisfied from above. We can't think that we're going to be filled with our own ways, our own activities, our own desires, our own things, our own treasures. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So we love all these earthly things and we can't stop thinking about them and planning about them and seeking to protect them or get them or keep them. Uh, where our treasure is, what we're truly treasuring, our heart is going to be fixated on that. We need to declutter. We need to get rid of many of these things because if we treasure up these idols, we may not be treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath, but we certainly are going to have a lot of works burned up at the last day. We need to put our treasure where it ought to be, and that is in heaven with God in Christ. And I would urge you to just consider, just consider whether you would be willing to spend every day at least 30 minutes in the Word of God and prayer. 30 minutes a day. You figure if you sleep eight hours, you work eight hours, let's just pretend you work from home so there's no commute, um, gives you eight hours to work with in your free time. Obviously, many of us are chuckling at the idea of free time. We're very busy. But let's just take eight hours of free time. That's, you know, 30 minutes, one-sixteenth of that. One-sixteenth of that. Six percent, something like that. 30 minutes a day for the Word and prayer. Read the Bible 15 minutes. Pray. Come before the Lord in private. Worship on your knees for 15 minutes. If I offered you... $1,000 a week to keep a journal of that and hand it in that you did that. Would you do it? I would. I don't know if you would. Um, $1,000 a week is, is pretty nice, but here's the thing. Apart from that sort of uh, sweetening of the deal, would you still do it? And, and, and if you would do it for the $1,000, but not without the $1,000, that raises questions about where your treasure is. Think about that. And maybe there are other illustrations, other techniques to kind of bring that out, but, but I thought that might be helpful. Would you do it for the money? Because the Bible says that the Bible and prayer and our relationship with God is more valuable than all of these things. So let's take this to heart. Prepare, declutter, make space for that time with the Lord Jesus Christ because, my friends, He desires it. His heart yearns for you. He loves you. We're not talking about legalistic, tick-the-box kind of thing. We're saying Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. And He's knocking on the door of your heart and He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens to Me, I will come in and sup with Him and He with Me. Jesus is offering that. And my friends, if Jesus is in your heart, you're not going to have a hard heart. It's impossible. It's a zero-sum game. The more Jesus is consciously in your life, in your heart, you're fellowshipping and communing with Him, the softer and more sensitive your heart will be. Jesus and hardness of heart, it's like kryptonite and Superman. I don't know, however you want to work that out for yourself. But it's a zero-sum game. The more Christ increases in your heart, in your life, the softer, the more sensitive that you become. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your many mighty works. We give thanks for your worship and for your people. Help us to be soft and tender toward these privileges, toward these blessings. We pray that you would not allow us to harden our hearts, but that we would come to grips with that hardness of heart, that we would lament it, humble ourselves, and come before you in prayer and seek that reviving power day by day by day by day that we might be able to say uh, with the, the, the Queen of Sheba that what we've experienced here in this life, beautiful as it is, will be not even having seen the half of what we expect in the glory to come. Enable us to see you now through a glass darkly that all the more we may rejoice when we see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.